Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 will be our text. And what I want to do this morning is just to preach what's been on my heart for the past couple months as graduation approached and as the prospect of going into full-time ministry draws near. Last week I spoke with a friend, he's about 70 years old, as long as I've known him he's been in this counseling program, and he just graduated and I asked him, what are you going to do next? And he thought about it and he said, well I don't know. (laughs) And then he said he's going to go to Disney World, but that was a joke. (laughs) And uh, it, it brings up something interesting that we're familiar with. It's often the case that once we've reached our goal, we're not really sure what to do next. Uh, About a day after that, my wife and I watched a movie. I don't usually watch movies or like movies. This was a fantastic movie. I love this movie. Great plot, great action, the whole thing. The ending was phenomenal. Uh, And then the credits. And I was like, wow, I would love to watch a sequel. And then I thought, there can't be another one. All, All the problems are solved. All things have been reconciled. There's nothing else to do. And you know, we can think the same thing about our Christian life. We hear the gospel. The Lord opens our eyes to see the wickedness of our sin and, and the prospect and the reality that we deserve God's eternal judgment. And then he opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ and his all sufficient sacrifice. And so we flee to Christ for refuge and we're saved perfectly. Once for all time, praise the Lord, it's finished. And then we're like, what's next? What do I do now? Do I roll the credits? No, not at all. Paul says, no, no, no. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. So, once we're saved, what do we do next? Paul begins the letter to the Colossians by saying, I thank God that you truly believed the gospel. And because of your faith in Christ, heaven is yours. Heaven is yours. It is secured for you. You just need to wait for it. And then he says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And you say, wait, why? Why? We're already saved. What more do we need? Listen, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every work, and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. In other words, because you are saved, I pray now that you would walk worthy of that salvation. Justification, reconciliation, adoption, regeneration, They're not ends in themselves. They are a means to one great end, that you and I would be conformed to his image, that you and I would be like Christ. Colossians 2 verse 6 says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. You've been united to Christ, now be like him. And you say, wait a minute. Aren't we already, in God's sight, perfectly holy based upon the righteousness of Christ credited to us? Paul says, yes and amen, and that is a glorious truth, but that's just the beginning. That is just the beginning. 
You weren't saved for a mere positional holiness. You were saved that you would be practically and completely holy. Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You catch that? You are already holy and beloved as the elect of God. So therefore, try to be like this. Understand, those things don't save you. They are the things we are enabled to do only after we've been saved. I love this poem by John Bunyan. It says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, before the gospel came to you in power, you were spiritually dead in your sins. You were unable and unwilling to do anything pleasing in the sight of God. Your sins went so far over your head that you had absolutely no hope but to die, to perish eternally as the just payment for your crimes against a holy God. But, but you were washed by his blood. And you were reconciled through his cross. He has put his spirit within you. He's given you a new heart so that you can now live in a way that's pleasing in his sight because of the life of his son in you. You guys understand that? It's not you. It's the life of his son in you. And church, just as a side note, we cannot confuse the order here. Sinners aren't saved once they're good enough to be saved. Romans 4, 5 says, God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. 1 Timothy 1, 15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not the righteous. Sinners are justified once for all time because of the righteousness of Christ. And then and only then are we commanded to walk in a manner worthy of such a salvation that is securely ours in Christ. Look at Colossians 3, 3. It says this, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Glory awaits. In the meantime, mortify your sin. Mortify your sin. In Colossians 1, 24 to 27, where we find our text, Paul is saying, my ministry is to help you, the church, be like the one whom you were saved to be. And if we've been saved for the sole purpose of being like Christ and all that that entails, we would do well to know what Paul says is the means by which we grow in that. We would do well to know what is the method that God uses to conform us to that very image. So let's look at it together. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. This is our text. Paul writes, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 
Now, before we examine this text, I imagine there are some of you here saying, wait a minute, hold on. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. This is his ministry. What does this have to do with me? And that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) This ministry of admonition and teaching is not restricted to the Apostle Paul. What he says he does in this text is what he says you ought to do for one another. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That sound familiar? We all have this ministry to one another. If you belong to the body of Christ, this is your ministry. And so we ought to take Paul's philosophy of ministry and to make it our own. Now, in this text, we have four elements which ought to equip you to minister effectively in the body of Christ so that we would grow up into the same image. So let's look at it together. The first one, first point, the gospel of Christ, our proclamation. The gospel of Christ, our proclamation. Paul says, we proclaim him. Who is the him whom Paul proclaims? Look at verse 27. The verse right before, it says this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel, pure and simple. Christ in you. And oh, what an incredible reality this is, that sinners like you and me, who deserve nothing less than eternal torment, have instead been united to the eternal Son of God. Instead of being immersed in the lake of fire for all of eternity, instead we've been placed into God's only beloved Son, such that we can say Christ is in us and we are in him. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now this hope is not a I hope it works out kind of hope. No, this is a certainty. This is a certainty. Hebrews 6.11 calls it the full assurance of hope. Full assurance. Hope is not used in the New Testament the same way we use it today. This is a certainty. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5 of Colossians, that this hope is laid up for you. It's laid up. It's reserved for you. You'll receive it in due time. It's securely yours. Praise the Lord. I love Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, verse 13. In him you also, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And you guys know well that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the hope of glory. And this hope, this certainty, has a sanctifying effect Why? Because it points us 
to Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's why Paul instructs the Colossians in chapter 3 to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That's where your hope is. Look to him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Friends, Jesus is no half savior. He didn't come to make salvation possible for you. He didn't come to make provision for you to save yourselves. No, Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to actually save sinners, not to make them savable. It's been finished. And all who have taken refuge from the wrath of God in him will not fail to be saved by him. If you've come to Christ by faith, you belong to God. You're a child of God. You're no longer a child of Satan. You're no longer a child of this world, a child of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. You are Christ's. You belong to him. And when he comes again, you'll be forever blessed in his presence when our king returns. And what a glorious reality that is. And that is the promise for all who come to him by faith. And it's the person and work of Jesus Christ in this gospel that we proclaim to one another. I had lemon honey tea, so it helped a little bit. So thank you for the one who mentioned that for me. Excuse me about my voice. I was singing so loudly with the worship. It was so great. And it's this very gospel that Paul says, I proclaim him even to Christians who are already saved. Christians are never done with the gospel. Just because we believe the gospel doesn't mean we are done with the gospel. Paul writes, oops, here we go. Nope, no worries. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 6, that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying in you since the day you heard it. You don't need to see it up here. You have your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 6, you see it. We will never be done with the gospel. The glory of Christ in the gospel is the beginning, middle, and end of our salvation. How were you justified? Was it not in seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4? How will you be sanctified? 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, when we behold as in a mirror, when we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another after the image of Christ. And how will you be glorified? 1 John 3, 3, 3, 2, excuse me, says this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The entirety of our spiritual life is inextricably linked to our seeing Christ. And so church, proclaim him to one another. Speak of him to one another. We're familiar with the power that attends the preaching of the gospel to the lost. Romans 1.16 says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But I wonder if we recognize what is going on when we proclaim Christ to one another. When the redeemed believer beholds more of his Savior, With the eyes of faith, he is transformed from one degree of glory to the next after the same image. 
just one glimpse of him with the eyes of faith and how glorious must he be is the means by which we grow in that righteousness in which we are positionally. We become in practice what we are in position. And if merely speaking about Christ has that effect on your brothers and sisters, friends, we have every reason in the world to proclaim Christ to one another, to bring our conversations to him. Think about this past week when you've gathered together. What has been the subject of your conversations? I'm amazed when I see a gathering of Christians and the conversation never gets to Christ. I mean, what greater subject is there? Are you talking about problems? Certainly Christ has to do with the answer. Are you talking about blessings of life? Same thing. And if we struggle to see how Christ is inexplicably connected to every aspect of our lives, we have all the more need to proclaim Christ to one another. He is intimately connected. Christ is all and in all, Paul says in Colossians 3.11. And church, just imagine how much we would grow if we all did that for one another. Well, that's number one, the gospel of Christ, our proclamation. Number two, the word of Christ, our pattern. The word of Christ, our pattern. What is the means by which Christ is proclaimed? Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Admonishing and teaching. Notice how they're directly linked to the proclamation of Christ. That's why in our parallel text, Colossians 3.16, we're instructed to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly. And then and only then are we able to admonish and teach one another with all wisdom. I have nothing to say in terms of admonition and teaching apart from the word of Christ, which is the word of God. Now, the term for admonishment has to do with confronting someone about avoiding or ceasing from a course of action or wrong thinking. I'll read that again. It has to do with confronting someone about avoiding or ceasing from a sinful course of action or wrong thinking. Big definition. It could also be translated warning as warning. Now, some of you might be saying to yourselves, wait a minute, I don't want to admonish anybody, let alone be admonished. That is so unloving. And I understand the sentiment. It is certainly much more difficult to admonish a brother than it is to teach him. But the admonishment that Paul has in mind is far from unloving. I want us us to see this. I want to give you an example. When Paul gathered the Ephesian elders around him, Before his departure, in Acts chapter 20, he said to them, Therefore be watchful, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And you'd think that if you have a guy admonishing you every single day for three years, you'd be happy to see him leave. (laughs) But on the contrary, what does it say? Verse 37. And they began to weep. They began to weep aloud. And falling on Paul's neck, they were kissing him, being in agony, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Friends, these men loved the one who cared enough about them to to admonish them every day for three years. Why? 
because if sin clouds the sight of Christ, then admonishment from a brother or sister helps us to see our Savior more clearly. And the one who loves you the best is the one that helps you to see the most of Christ. And admonition is fundamental to that end. Look at Romans 15, 14. But I myself am also convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge and being able also to admonish one another. Now, you wouldn't think that that would be the word that Paul chose to put there. But he says he was convinced that they were full of goodness because they were able to admonish one another. Admonition is good and it's loving. The church is not a social club. It's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not a place where we gather and just have fun. We do have fun. I've had a lot of fun with you guys. You guys are amazing. But the church is a place, fundamentally, where we gather together to build up one another using our gifts and the means of grace to build up one another in Christ. Now, there are times when love covers a multitude of sins, especially when we're personally sinned against. Proverbs 19.11 says, it's a glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory to do that. And so I hope you guys are doing that with one another. But when it looks like a, a brother or sister is, is caught in a trespass, when it, when it seems like they're in bondage to their sin once again and they're going after the things of this world, love constrains us. It compels us to intervene. Proverbs 26, 27 verse 6, excuse me, says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It is a friend who would admonish me, and it's an enemy who would flatter me in my sin. One of the reasons why it's so hard to give admonishment is that those on the receiving end don't receive it well. But don't let that be you. Don't put a stumbling block in the way of your own growth in Christ because of a foolish attitude. Proverbs 9.8 says, do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. He will love you. Husbands, if your wife comes to you and says, I think you could have handled that better. Don't say, why, well, I, I got some things for you to work on too, missy. No, that is not the right way to do it. That is not wise. Let that kind of attitude be far from you. Receive your spouse's admonition and love her for it. Love her for it. Thank her for it. I see some of you pointing at each other. <laughs> yes, even if it wasn't done exactly the way you'd like it, receive it. It's good. It's good. We need it. And if you're not sure if you're in the wrong, say, brother, uh, thank you for coming to me. I know it was out of love that you did this. Right now, I'm struggling to see what you see, but I will think on these things. And I welcome your prayers to help me see my sin more clearly. And you can also find a trusted brother or sister and say, Brother, I want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Would you help me to that end? Would you be willing to call out sin in me when you see it? And I'll do my best to receive it humbly and thankfully. David himself invites this kind of admonition in Psalm 141. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. 
It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Don't refuse it. Admonition given, received, and invited is essential to growth in Christ because it helps us to see our Savior more clearly. It clears up our vision. And if admonition clears up the clouds, then teaching shines the light. Teaching shines the light. If the purpose of all things is the praise and worship of the Lord Jesus, we have every obligation in the world to seek to know him, to know him. Jesus said in John 4, we worship what we know. We worship what we know. You can't worship what you don't know. That's just obvious. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't studied the word of God, how are you worshiping him? How are you worshiping the true God? It's not intelligence that we're after when we study the word of God. We're after him. We come to his word and we say, show me your glory. Open my eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. I want to see you. I want to know you and to walk in your ways. Theology is not for ivory tower scholars. Theology is the means by which we know God. Don't be afraid of theology or doctrine. Embrace it. Embrace it. Do you know why it is that scripture, graphe, which is really just writing on a piece of paper, has, has the power to sanctify us? Jesus said in John 5.39, don't have it up there, he says, the scriptures bear witness about me. They point us to Christ. It shows us Christ. Now, I'm not saying that Christ is in every text, but I'm saying that every text can lead us to Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. And you say, why are you so focused on our study of God's word when Paul is talking about teaching? Well, there's a proper order to it. Ezra had the right order. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. To study, to practice, and then to teach. Okay, you guys see the order? Yes, we are commanded to teach one another, but be sure that your teaching is based on a consistent, diligent study of God's word, which you studied not to win Bible trivia or to be puffed up in knowledge, but to know him and to make him known to the body of Christ that we would all be built up in him. You can say, dear brother, what are you learning about our Lord this week? Sister, do you mind if I share with you this text I read? Oh, it shines a glorious light on our Savior. Now, there's an important element to all of this, and it's in the phrase, with all wisdom. With all wisdom. Don't hear this sermon and think, okay, now I can go bulldozing over people, calling out sin left and right, and telling people what they ought to know. That is, that is not the way. That is not the way. There are characteristics of wisdom that should accompany our admonition and teaching. James 3.13 speaks of the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom is gentle. Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom. And what comes out? The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. 
Colossians 4, 6 says, let, the, let your words always be with grace. Always be with grace. People go to the next verse or the next part of that and say, oh, but it says seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. And I said, no, it says always with grace first. Always with grace. So that's the manner in which wisdom speaks. But the matter in which wisdom speaks is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You never speak more wisely than when you speak correctly of Christ, when you speak of the truth of Christ. He is the fount of wisdom. Well, we've seen number one, the gospel of Christ, our proclamation. Number two, the word of Christ, our pattern. Number three, the image of Christ, our pursuit. The image of Christ, our pursuit. And we've already touched on this a little bit. Paul says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor. Now the word for complete in the Greek is telos. It's typically translated in the New Testament as either perfect or mature. And based on the context, we should see it as Paul laboring for the spiritual maturity of the people of God. And oh, how I wish I could explain the heart of Paul for God's people. He followed the example of our Lord who said, I am among you as one who serves. I'm among you as one who serves. Jesus served even to the point of death. Paul went through so much just to see regular people like you and me grow in spiritual maturity. He went through afflictions, distresses, hardships, beatings, imprisonments, poverty, sleeplessness, hunger, to name a few. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, he says, it's all for your sake, beloved. It's all for you. Everything that I do, it's for you. And I love the verse right after that, right before that, verse 12. He says, so death works in us, but life in you. That's a servant's heart. And in Philippians 2.17, he says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you say, Paul, you have only one life to live. Why are you giving it all away? And he says, for momentary, Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's why. But that's not all. There's a telling description of Paul's heart in Galatians 4.19, and I love this. He says, My children, with whom I am again in labor. I'm in labor. He's a guy. Until Christ is formed in you. I'm in labor. That's a different kind of labor than the one in our text. But Paul's physical labor is not detached from his intense emotional concern for their spiritual well-being. It profits you nothing, dear brothers and sisters, to give your body over even to death if it's not done with the proper affections. And do you know anything of this pain, anything of this labor, because you long to see Christ formed in those whom you love, in your brothers and sisters? Do you feel their weakness 
as yours? Do you feel it when you see your brother or sister going after the things of this world? Does that hurt you when you see that? I know it does for me. Do you long to see the beauty of Christ magnified in their life because they're following him and reflecting him and being like him? Do you feel that? May we imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. For it's in giving our lives away for one another that we actually find it. Now, notice Paul says the phrase, panta anthropon, every man. Every man, three times in this verse. And I take it to mean everyone in the church. No one is excluded, certainly, from the promise of salvation in Christ Jesus. But no one is excluded from the need to be admonished and instructed. If you have yet to actually see Christ, either at death or in the rapture, and that's none of you, I hope, I hope, uh, the presence of sin remains in your body. We still have sin. We're all sinners, all of us. Even the Apostle Peter needed a loving rebuke in Galatians chapter 2 when he was out of step with the gospel. 2 Corinthians 12 21. This may be 1 Corinthians. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot say that to one another. We cannot say that. Every member has a role to play in the body of Christ. I love this. Ephesians 4, 5, or 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We need each part. Your pastor needs you. Your elders need you. You need one another. You can't sit this out. If you belong to the body of Christ, you have a part to play. You have a part to play. Now we've seen number one, the gospel of Christ, our proclamation. Number two, the word of Christ, our pattern. Number three, the image of Christ, our pursuit. Let's go on to number four. Last point, the power of Christ, our power. The power of Christ, our power. Paul says in verse 29, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You know, part of the blessing of having Christ in you is that Christ lives through you. One of our favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And you say, so when I sin, that's Christ? No, that's you. But when you do good, whatever good that you do, we sang this today, that's him in you. That's him working in and through you. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And so as we labor to build up the body in love using our gifts, we recognize at the end of the day that it's all the work of Christ in us from beginning to end. But this does not mean that we say, well, I'm just gonna sit back and wait for him to work through me. That is not the case. That is far from it. Paul says he labors striving, agonizomai in the Greek, agonize, 
the word typically refers to the fight, the struggle that goes into an athletic contest. And I think that's a good picture because no one fights harder unless you're fighting for your life. No one fights harder than one in a contest. This is the race you've been waiting for. You've trained day after day. This is it. And the crown is at the end. That's what I'm going for. That's what I've set my mind on all these years. That's what I'm going for. And so what was Paul fighting for? What was the crown at the end? I love this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not you? Is it not you? Before our Lord Jesus had his coming, for you are our glory and our joy. When you're in the kingdom of God and you see all the people who were eternally blessed because of your ministry to them, part of heaven's joys is that we know what effect our ministry had on our brothers and sisters in Christ who are now your friends forever. Oh, it'll be so worth it, dear church, when we see that. So labor, labor to build up one another in Christ and proclaim him to one another. We all need to be doing this for one another. And so look around, look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see them as your joy and your crown of exaltation on that glorious day when Christ's kingdom comes and eternal life begins? Is that you? Do you think that way? Do you see that? That's how Paul saw. That's what Jesus saw. We looked to the end. This is not our world. This is not our country. We're looking to the end. And so we live in such a way. I'll close with this. That little phrase at the end of verse 28. In Christ. None of the things that I've said this morning will be of any benefit to you if you remain outside of Christ. Any growth, any progress without Christ is like whitewashing a tomb. Apart from him, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. If you're here and you've been trying to be good enough to get to heaven based on your own merits and good works, count it all rubbish, garbage, compared to knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of your own. The fount in which you need to be washed the fountain in which you need to be cleansed is wide open to you this very day. Go and wash in his blood and you'll be white as snow. You'll be white as snow. That's the promise. And then take his garment, that garment, that robe of righteousness. That's his. Take it upon your shoulders. That's his righteousness. Take it upon you and you'll be a child of God. You'll be a child of God. He'll see you in Christ your sins are washed away, and his righteousness is yours. That's the promise for all who come to him in faith. So come to Christ, not because you want his gifts, but because you want him. Those who enter into the glory of heaven are those who did not seek Christ for the sake of heaven. They sought Christ for the sake of Christ. Heaven is not heaven if Jesus is not there. You guys get that? We don't do this 
so that we can just get heaven and pearly gates and streets of gold. That's nothing compared to knowing Christ. The psalmist, I love this, Psalm 73, 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. Is that you? Is that you? If you're here and you're outside of Christ, I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see the gospel of his glory. Turn away from all your sin. Forsake the passing pleasures of sin for the one in whose presence are pleasures forevermore. That's the glory that we're seeking, to be with him, to be in his presence. Sell all you have, as it were, and buy him without money, without cost, and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's the promise. It's as simple as that. One look to a Savior. One look. And church, let's be faithful to proclaim Christ to one another, letting the word of Christ dwelling within us richly and keeping our eyes fixed on him until that day when we see him face to face. May we be faithful to that end until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so grateful for your word, thankful for the truths that we see, the glory that's in it. Oh, it's a treasure. It's, it's more sweet than honey. It's richer than the finest gold, what we have in your word, because it points us to Christ. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you that you have made atonement for sin perfectly. Thank you that your, your salvation is freely given even to sinners like us. Oh, may it be that no one here fails to come to Christ by faith. May they see their works as garbage and may they see Christ as all-glorious and may they flee to him for refuge, for joy and everlasting peace at your right hand. And may this church be a church that proclaims Christ to one another. May no one come in and out of this church without hearing of Christ and his love displayed in the gospel. May we be a church full of ministers to one another. All for your glory. We ask all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.